Look at these three words written larger than the rest, with a special pride never written before or since. Tall words proudly saying, We the people. Welcome to the LexRex Institute podcast. I'm your host, David Truschel, the lead writer for the LexRex Institute. And I'm your co-host, Alexander Haberbush. I'm president of the LexRex Institute, and I'm also a constitutional attorney, although I won't be speaking in that capacity today. If you'd like to know more about our organization, you can visit our website at LexRex.org. That's L-E-X-R-E-X dot org. You're changing everything, David. What are you doing? Yeah, because you said you wanted more stuff in there, and I didn't, you know, whatever. You skipped a huge section. Like what? I guess I'll, before we begin, please note no, that, that nothing that in this podcast... Const- what? That can come later. But you went way out of order. I thought you wanted to do all the... Th- <sighs> before we begin, please note that nothing in this podcast constitutes legal advice, and that all of the opinions expressed, including the ones that were just expressed, are the opinions of the individuals expressing them and not necessarily the opinions of the Lex Rex Institute. Sometimes I don't know what you want from me. We have a script, David. Yeah, but you wanted it changed, and I didn't have time to change it, so we had to improvise, and, you know, all right, this is, I'm keeping all of this in, by the way. Oh, no. We should start over. No. Okay, well, what have Okay, I guess this would be the appropriate time to remind you that we are a legal issues podcast, not a political issues podcast. However, there does tend to be some overlap, as we've said in the past. Alexis de Tocqueville noted he is very famous, I... What would you call him? Sort of a guy who study, I guess, cultural anthropologist <laughs> sent from France to study American culture. And what he noted about American culture was that political issues in this country do tend to eventually become legal issues. And nowadays, of course, more issues are politicized than ever before. So there is probably going to be some overlap. But we do try to stay strictly on legal issues. Anyway, our name Lex Rex Institute, Lex Rex is Latin for the law is king, because really there's only two options. Either the law is your king or man is your king, and you really don't want the second one. Was You're that just going to sit there, David? Was, was that everything, though? That, that's, that was part no of more? it. I think we might still have more of an intro to go. Do we? What else? What else is there? We need a list if we're, if we're going to do all this. And you seem well, to have we have, have a script, David. Not that has this, not that has this stuff in it. Not that has this stuff in it. That's what I'm saying. It is. No, if you look at the current draft, it's got all that in it. Other than, I, you know, I don't have a script written for who, Al, who Alexis de Tocqueville is. But other than that. Oh, anyway. Well, I haven't seen this. I think you're lying about this. I'm um, not. You can look in, the, look in the file right now. I'm not sure I believe you. Well, anyway, so we've got an exciting program planned for you guys today. We're going to be doing yet another entry in our Supreme Court Hall of Shame, perhaps one of the most shameful decisions in the history of the Supreme Court. That's an exciting one we have for you. It's Wickard v. Filburn. And then after that, we're going to be taking a look at sort of the version 1.0, or I guess the the beta version of the United States Constitution, otherwise known as the Articles of Confederation, our first attempt at a constitution. Didn't work for a variety of reasons, and we're going to explain to you guys why that is, and hopefully give you some confidence in the legality, well, not just the legality, but also the superiority of the United States Constitution, that it does indeed form a more perfect union. So, David, do we want to jump right into Wickard then? Pretty much. uh, I will note, I now believe you that there is a new version of the script. However, I do note that you misspelled de Tocqueville. Anyway, 
Um, yeah, that's. I'm not at all surprised. Yeah, that's, let's. Uh, I can't spell let's get, words in really any language, but especially French. Yeah, fair enough. Let's get into Wickard v. Filburn. So we have some exciting new sound effects for the Hall of Shame. If you want to cue the music. And we actually had that song written specifically for the Lex Rex Institute podcast. It was very expensive for us to fund that. Thank you, I David, don't think, for coordinating that. I don't think you should just lie to the people. Um, <laughs> oh, that, did, that we, seems... did we not do that? No, um, as I told you. Um, oh. That is not what we did. That is well, a song anyway, by... That's, it's a good the... intro to some of the most shameful decisions in Supreme Court history. Today we're looking at Wickard v. Filburn, as we mentioned earlier. We've... Mention this case sort of in passing pretty frequently on this podcast, as well as our other materials that we put out. If you've followed us for long, I think it's no surprise that sort of our go-to example of one of the areas the Constitution has been most misinterpreted or most distorted is going to be yeah. the Commerce Clause. And the case that we most frequently cite as an example of that distortion, or rather sort of the high watermark for that distortion is going to be Wickard v. Filburn. So if you followed yeah. us for long, you probably already know the basics of this case. But for those of you who are new, let's go over those now. So, David, you want to do that for us? Sure. So as part of the New Deal, as it's called... The, well, first, you know, let's explain what the Commerce Clause is, David. Take a oh, step fa fa fair, fair enough. So one of the sort of areas of... Um, so America's got a constitution, right? <laughs> And that constitution is, you know, there are additional ones, but largely the first portion of it anyway is divided into three articles, the three branches of government. Your Article 1 is the legislative branch, Article 2 is the executive branch, Article 3 is the judicial branch, right? So Article 1, of course, because we know our constitution is one of enumerated powers. If the constitution doesn't say the federal government can do it, federal government can't do it. Enumerated right. powers. So Article 1, Section 8 of the constitution lists the powers of Congress. And for our purposes, what's the relevant power that we're talking about today, David? That they have the power to regulate commerce between the states. So interstate yeah, commerce. So, the word I was looking for earlier and I'm too tired to think of was jurisdiction. I was going to say one of the things Congress has jurisdiction over is interstate con uh, commerce. Anyway. <laughs> that's correct. Yeah. And because that power is listed as a congressional power, we know that if Congress has power over it, Nobody else does because jurisdiction is always going to be exclusive. So right. Congress can regulate commerce. The states cannot, I'm sorry, can regulate interstate commerce, commerce right. between the states. The states may not regulate commerce between the states, which makes a lot of sense, right? You know, we're trying to create a union of the states. It's probably not going to work too well if they can put tariffs on one another. Right. Or if, you know, California can say, Massachusetts, you're not allowed to make transistors anymore or whatever it is. Probably not going to yeah. work too well. So that power is left to Congress. And there have been a lot of cases on this even prior to Wickard v. Filburn. First yeah. and one of the most notable of those is going to be Gibbons v. Ogden, where Chief Justice John Marshall, a very famous Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, concluded that navigation is commerce. And using waterways between states does constitute commerce between states. You know, that is indeed interstate. So First little expansion of that clause, we've seen gradual expansion since that time. 
we're probably going to skip all the intermediate steps here. But yeah, uh, there is kind of one, you know, one small step for a pen, one giant leap for a Supreme Court that occurs mm-hmm. in Wickard v. Filburn. And what is that leap, David? Yeah. So as part of the raft of legislation that comes with the New Deal in the 30s, yeah, so why, why is what is the New Deal? Why do we have... I interrupt you every time you say something, yes, David. Yes, yes, so you do. I'm going to keep doing that the rest of this episode. But <laughs> what, what is the New Deal, Dave? Why, why, why is that something that comes about? Well, you know, the, the tail end of the Great Depression, people are looking for solutions to, you know, sort of kickstart the economy, to get, yeah. you know, people money are back in the working man's pocket. Yeah, and... FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. You know, people don't have a lot of money. Their pockets are empty. They can't buy food easily, can't feed their families. Right. What's a really great solution when people can't buy enough to eat? Uh, You stop people from producing more food because you want the price of food to be higher. And that's where you put quotas on on how much grain people can grow so that you (laughs) keep the price of grain high because high prices on grain are. Good a good way to solve the depression, apparently. And good for America and good for everybody. And um, anyway, that's where the Agricultural Adjustment Act, AAA, enters the picture. Which and is such an Orwellian name, isn't it? <laughs> it's, you know, it, it could be worse, I guess, if they had called it like the Ministry of Plenty, which I think may actually have been uh, something from 1984, may not have been. I don't remember. It's been a while since I've read that, that book. That sounds familiar. But <laughs> if, if not, you could write the unauthorized sequel and have that. Yeah. You know, that would be a little more directly dystopian. But in any case, yeah, the, the Agricultural Adjustment Act has a so, very bureaucratic tone yeah, to it. Because everybody's poor. So President Roosevelt concludes, and I guess Congress agrees with him, is that the real problem in our economy right now is that the price of grain is too low Farmers can't make enough money. How do we fix that? Well, we'll destroy grain that is grown. You know, we'll put it in warehouses and then burn it. And we will limit the amount of land on which people can grow grain. Now, this didn't just regulate grain, regulated a whole host of other agricultural commodities. Grain's the relevant one for the purposes of Wickard, though, so we're going to limit our analysis to that. Hold on a sec. There's a huge cockroach here that I want to kill. Oh, well, let's take a brief commercial break then, folks. So while David's gone, now is a great time to remind you about the books that the Lex Rex Institute has on offer on our website, as well as our Lex Rex Institute t-shirts. You can find both of those things at lexrex.org slash store. Now, for a small contribution, I think as low as $20, you can receive one of our books. We offer currently a very nice, actually, bound copy of the Constitution and Declaration of Independence. We also offer Neil Gorsuch's A Republic, if you can keep it. I believe we've only got a couple copies of that one left, so grab it while you still can. It's a lot more expensive on Amazon.com, actually. We're offering it for a lower price than Amazon does. And the third book that we have is John Locke's Two Treatises on Government. That one's going to be particularly relevant for understanding, well, frankly, today's episode, since much of our Constitution and Declaration of Independence are based in John Locke's philosophy. So while David slays that cockroach, go ahead and check out our website. Thank you. All right. The hunter returns, having destroyed the, the cockroach. So You got it. Sorry about that. Mm-hmm. Yep. Great. Killed it with a sandal. Great. Glad to hear it. Anyway, um, what were we talking about? The Agricultural Adjustment Act? 
Yeah, we were saying, so we we're going to limit our analysis to just wheat for the purposes of this podcast right. because yep. that's what, uh, what Wickard yeah, that's, was, that's I'm what, sorry, what Filburn was growing. Filburn. Yeah, Wickard yeah, was the Secretary of Agriculture. Yeah. The sort of, not, well, not really the villain of the piece. That's, that's more the court itself, but, um, you know, a sort of. <laughs> he's, a just, he's just enforcing what he was told to enforce. Yeah. But that, that's a, sort of an aside. That's yeah. <laughs> because of the 11th Amendment, when you sue the federal government, usually, or actually state governments too, you usually don't sue the government directly. You sue the agent responsible for enforcing the law that you're claiming is invalid. So that's the reason why Wickard was the party in this suit. Yeah. So, you know, interesting background to the Agriculture Adjustment excuse me, Agricultural Adjustment Act. It's a mouthful. That's a, that's that's a not, bit of a tongue twister. Pun was not intended because, you know, it's about agriculture. <laughs> you know, food. Anyway, there was a prior version of it that had been struck down by the court on other grounds as unconstitutional. And that, that you know, would Congress, have been before President Roosevelt threatened to pack the court. Is that right? Yes. Yes, I believe that's yeah. true. So Congress re-legislates we, it, got, changes after it. After that, we get the switch in time that saves nine, uh, where... Yeah. Justice Roberts, not John Roberts, but a different Justice Roberts, Roberts. who also Mm -hmm. apparently decided based on political considerations, decided he was going to start upholding FDR's New Deal policies. And this Wickard v. Filburn is looking at the second Agricultural Adjustment Act. This one was passed in 1938 and determining whether or not Congress had validly exercised its authority in passing that act. So what's the issue that the court ends up looking at? Well, so this farmer, Filburn, Grew a certain amount of wheat, you know, and he, because of the quotas, he was limited to only so much that he could bring to market. He grew that. Yeah. So this guy he, knows they're regulating how much wheat I can grow. Yeah. I also know wheat's pretty expensive, since that's the whole point of the Agricultural Adjustment Act, is to make yeah. wheat more expensive. So, you know, he's got more land than he can use to produce the legal amount of wheat. What does Philburn end up doing? He grows a little extra to use for, among other things, to feed his livestock and to feed his family. And Do his livestock live? He's from Ohio, right? I believe Ohio. I'm almost I think positive that's Ohio. Right. Could be. Are, are Indiana, his livestock also from Ohio? I I think we can conclude that safely. Yes. Do they live um, in Ohio? They do. They do indeed. Does his family live in Ohio? Yes. Yes, they do. Does his family ever travel out of Ohio while eating the grain that he produces for them? You'd have to ask that. I'm, I'm not, I'm not no. sure about that one. I, the facts <laughs> as presented to the court, whether or not that actually happened, the facts as reviewed by the court said that they did not. Yeah. All of this so, wheat was eaten in the same state in which it was grown. It was not sold to anybody. It was not even given away to anybody. It was eaten by Wickard. I'm sorry. I keep doing that. It was eaten yeah. by Filburn, <laughs> his own family, and his livestock. So it's a guy growing his own wheat on his own land for his own consumption. But he is doing so in excess of the quotas imposed by the Agricultural Adjustment Act. So what right. ends up happening to Mr. Filburn? He is penalized for doing so. Basically, a, a fine is levied on him. You know, it's proportionate to the amount in excess of the marketable limit. And... I think, you know, it's, it's one of those instances where an American sort of takes a, a very hard-headed and principled stand on something. Yeah. It's not a huge fine. I think... How much was it? Do you remember? $117 and change, which, you know, obviously in 1938... That's, that's not that's, insubstantial, especially that's, in the that's Great not Depression. Nothing. Yeah, that's not yeah. nothing, but it's not 
the equivalent of tens or hundreds of thousands. It's probably, you know, it's, a and it's not going to cover your so. legal fees to no, challenge the, the Agricultural Adjustment Act. Not even close. If you certainly can find not. a lawyer that'll work for that, then send him my way because I'd love to hire him. <laughs> yeah. But he challenges all the way to the Supreme Court and they rule against him and find that yeah, no, so, in fact, so he won it he won at the lower level right that, yeah. that's why wickard's name comes first in the the suit because yes, yeah he I, I think it was the circuit court right found in his favor said that hey this wheat is only grown on your land for your own consumption with on with you know on your own property yeah what's interstate about that that's very clearly intrastate right it's only you being used in the state where it was produced and you as we think, know, yeah. Congress can only regulate commerce when it's between states. So what's going on between states here? And circuit court finds in his favor, but it gets mm -hmm. to the Supreme Court and Justice Jackson ends up being the justice who writes the opinion in this case. This is not Katanji Brown Jackson. This is, oh, I, I forget Justice Jackson's first it's, name. Do you remember? Uh, I want to say Robert, but. I think that's right. That sounds right. That's right. right. I, his, his middle name, I don't know how to pronounce, is much more striking. Something like Howut, Huout, H-O-U-G-H-W-O-U-T. That's the name I Let's remember much more clearly Robert than Robert. H. Jackson. Yeah, Robert <laughs> H. Jackson. <laughs> yeah, so again, not the same as Katanji Brown Jackson. Yeah. Although Justice Jackson, Justice Robert Jackson, is an appointee of which president, David? Actually, I don't remember. Let you can take a guess. Take By this point in the court, you can take a guess. I think it's like seven out of nine at this point. Uh, yeah, uh, more than likely, it's, it's Franklin Roosevelt at this point. That's right. He's a Franklin Roosevelt appointee. So he's appointed by the president, whose act is being heard by the court, writes an opinion, and he says, hey, you know, actually, I think that this is interstate commerce. And what argument does he give for that? Basically... If this guy weren't growing this wheat to feed himself and his family and his animals, he would have probably bought it from somebody else who may, in fact, live in another state and grow the wheat there. So by doing something purely not interstate, he is affecting interstate commerce. Really? One guy? One guy by not buying wheat? So let me get this straight. Two problems here. First one. That's not a decision to do something. That's a decision not to do something. Yeah. He's decided not to buy wheat on the open market. And you're saying the Congress can regulate that. So Congress can regulate decisions not to buy something, provided that the person would otherwise have to buy it. That's considered commerce. Oh, yeah. And, you know, we, we actually talked about another one of those cases earlier. <laughs> yeah. So that's nuts already because... Uh -huh. I, I don't know how you say something is commerce if nobody ever bought or sold it. You know, it's, it's his own seed that he's sowing yeah. in the ground mm -hmm. uh, and then growing wheat from that. At no point is money changing hands. There's nothing commercial here. So they find that, yes, it is indeed commerce because otherwise he'd have to buy the wheat on the open market. Yep. Shame. Shame. <laughs> and there's our other Shame. sound effect. Shame. But that aspect of it... <laughs> still does not get us around the interstate requirement exactly. because not only yeah. does something have to be commerce to be regulated, it has to be between the states. So David, you just said that it has a substantial effect upon interstate commerce. Really one guy. 
Well, if I recall correctly, the opinion actually goes out of its way to note, yeah, you know, the amount here is trivial, but that doesn't exempt you from the power of Congress, basically. So this is, you know, when we did our judicial philosophy episode a few episodes back, we talked about the theory of the Kantian judiciary, and I called it that. You had a much better name for it. I don't remember what it was, but I, I called, it called it that because it, it rested on a yeah moralism. I, I called it that because it rested on sort of yeah a moralistic, <laughs> categorical, imperative style yeah dictate. I think this is an even more Kantian ruling. Yeah, you know, like if you think of it in terms of equity, in in this case, it's hard to. Really, yeah. you know. it, it doesn't matter that this guy's activity didn't substantially affect interstate commerce. If everybody acted like Philburn, well, that would substantially affect interstate commerce. Therefore, right. we're going to say that in aggregate, what Mr. Philburn is doing has a substantial effect upon interstate commerce. Right. Yeah. And OK, so the, you're right to note that that is also quite insane, but... There was, I, I want to draw attention to one particular part of the, the opinion that I thought was particularly noteworthy. You know, when dealing with the point raised by Philburn, which I think is quite right, that he never brought this wheat to market. It wasn't on the market. It wasn't meant for the market. It was meant for personal use. <laughs> they, have, they make recourse to the text of the act which includes a definition of like marketable or bringing to market as you know using for other commercial purposes on the same farm. So <laughs> it's basically but it's not it's even a, a commercial purpose. It's it's what would otherwise be commercial. Yeah, but it's it, to me it's still crazy that you know the the point here is fundamentally Philburn is saying this is an unconstitutional thing they're doing, and then rather than make recourse to the constitution to justify it. They just say, no, the act itself says this one thing. And that has fundamentally changed the Boy, meaning that, of the word almost, market, basically. That's almost a precursor to Chevron deference, isn't it? It's very similar. There are a lot of It's actually kind of similar to what John Roberts did in Sibelius too, you know, the, the Roberts care case yep. where the act defines something a certain way, and rather than holding that subject to the Constitution, we're going to interpret the words of the Constitution according to the definitions of that act. Which exactly. I, I can't get the sound effect to play again, but David, can you add that in post? I, that's, <laughs> that's truly shameful. Yeah, fair enough. Let's, let's have a moment of silence for the shame sound effect. Shame. Shame. I think that's All right, long good enough. enough. Shame. Yeah. <laughs> shame. You know, th- this is... I, I mean, I don't want to say too much more about it because we sort of walked through how absurd this is. This is probably one of the most shameful and egregiously unjust decisions in the history of the court. Yeah. You know, there are other things where rights were created out of thin air or or ones where truly heinous things have been held to meet strict scrutiny, like Korematsu of the United States, which upheld the Japanese internment. There's been lots of cases like that, you know, ones that may have yeah. been worse in terms of their concrete effect. But here... We are looking at a clause of the Constitution that says Congress can only regulate commerce between, between the, states. the states. That's yep. the power that's articulated for Congress. Here we have something that by all appearances is neither commerce nor between, nor between states. The states. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, before before we before we uh, move on to the next topic, there's just two quick points I want to make. One, and I think this may tickle you in particular, Alex, but... 
one of the things the opinions the the opinion brings up is that oh you know lots of the the world's biggest grain exporters are imp- implementing quotas look at argentina and canada oh and- my gosh <laughs> i'd forgotten that part of the opinion that's yeah so argentina does not have the united states constitution right so it has there's- the presumably argentinian constitution or maybe doesn't have one i, I don't yeah, know they got it's, one it's at some not, point not so to have- they probably didn't <laughs> yeah, they probably really didn't care. Wait, I think Juan Perón was currently in power, wasn't he? He may have been. I don't, I, you know, my Argentinian history is a little less uh, full-fleshed than my U.S. history. But so there was that, you know, I always hate slash love it. And by love, I mostly mean just find amusing when people in U.S. government just sort of make an appeal to, well, we got to keep up with the Joneses of the rest of the world as though their situations were exactly the same and they had the same legal constraints, which they don't. Um, yeah. so. so just in case you weren't convinced by my sort of sleight of hand about how something that is neither interstate nor commerce can qualify as interstate commerce, let's just look at the fact that Argentina's doing it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then on that other point, though, on the point of interstate commerce, you know, it's worth pointing out that at this point, there's basically nothing that would conceivably be outside the scope of the Commerce Clause at this point. If you're, Except if you're, for, and, and to Robert's credit, in the Sibelius decision, that's the Robert's Care decision, he did say that a decision not to purchase something that you would not otherwise have purchased was not yeah. held to be under Commerce Clause. So he, he could not uphold the Affordable Care Act on the grounds of the Commerce Clause because, remember, it was penalizing somebody for the decision not to buy insurance. That was not something they would have been buying on the open market had they, you know, like Philburn, complied with the terms of that act. Yeah, but any any like actual positive act that you do, anything you in fact do rather than refrain from doing, is theoretically now within the, the scope of the Commerce Clause. And I think also the opinion really... Even if by doing that thing, you're refraining from doing the thing that is commerce. <laughs> yeah. And I think one <laughs> of the things, one of the elements of the opinion that I, I found particularly objectionable when I was rereading it in prep for this was that it seems to assume that the purpose of the Commerce Clause is for Congress to just sort of make the U.S. economy the best through legislation and I think that's a complete misunderstanding of what the purpose is. I think basically is actually- the, the point is that if, you know, an issue involves two or more states, no one yeah. state can possibly have jurisdiction. So the only right. party that could would be Congress. Yeah, exactly. Congress exists to make sure that the states have the same treatment with respect to commercial regulation. Yeah. And that's actually a pretty good segue into our next subject. So, uh, David, <laughs> you want to introduce that one for us? Sure. As you mentioned in the intro, the Articles of Confederation are the first attempt at a constitution for the United States, what we could consider sort of, you know, the beta version. And the the current constitution is the real 1.0 release. But yeah, so this ends up being so actually alongside the Committee of Five, which was the committee of the Continental Congress that drafted the Declaration of Independence. We have a second committee meeting. There are 13 members of that committee. It's led by John Dickinson, a name that you may know. That's his very famous founding father who voted against independence. But he, he was involved in the drafting of the Articles of Confederation. This committee ends up showing its findings to the rest of the Continental Congress on July 12th, 1776. So mm-hmm. very shortly after. The Declaration of Independence goes through. 
We start seeing sort of the beginnings of the Articles of Confederation. Does not end up being ratified until 1781, I believe. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I think that's correct. Yeah, because it's got to be ratified by the states. And there are 13 Articles of Confederation. So, yeah, D- David, you, you added this topic to our outline for today. There's a lot we could talk about when it comes to the Articles of Confederation. Sort of, um, where do we want to start? Well, I suppose we can start with the sort of structural elements of it. That's probably the the most concrete way to start. And I think actually shows one of the most important facets of the Articles of Confederation, especially in comparison to the Constitution. And probably the most noteworthy thing is there doesn't really seem to be a three-part system of government in the Articles of Confederation. We don't have, you know, any kind of independent executive. We don't have any mention of federal courts. Is there any executive? Sort of. Congress itself, I guess, but barely that. So it's even. so the executive is the same person as the legislative, essentially. In a manner, in a manner of speaking, yes. But the the actual executive powers afforded to Congress under the Articles of Confederation are right. minimal at best. Yeah, which is the real problem, right? You know, you, you yeah. probably in your history class when they talked about the Articles of Confederation, the way they talked about it was probably, you know, it made all sorts. It said all sorts of things, but it didn't give Congress any power to enforce its dictates. There were additional problems, you know, over and on top of that. But what that problem's really getting at, what when you know people say that, once people say, you know, it didn't give any teeth behind it, didn't give any enforcement power, what they're complaining about is the lack of an executive. Yeah. Because the executive is the person who brings laws into effect. Yeah. And in this case, there's basically no provision for that. So it's fully dependent, more or less, on the states choosing to comply, choosing to cooperate with the decisions of Congress. If Congress can even make decisions in the first place. Right. And, and that's going to be tricky, too. And I guess we can, we can talk about what Congress under the Articles of Confederation actually looks like, because it's very different than our version. So basically... Yeah, it's completely different. I mean, it's, it's yeah. a... Rather than the two houses that we have with the House of Representatives and the Senate, you just have one body, it's Congress. And... Rather than so what's the value of bicameralism? Why, why do we want two legislatures? Well, you know, as, as I think we've talked about, yes, on the podcast as well as elsewhere, the original idea was that the Senate sort of directly represented the interests of the states as such, rather than the populations of the states or the populations of the country. So right. the state legislatures originally, before it was amended out of the Constitution, appointed senators directly. And then, you know, by vote, states sent representatives to the House. Right. I also want to make sure that I stress this point, because a lot of folks, when they talk about the Articles of Confederation, I think probably just out of sloppiness, though some of this might be a concerted effort to sort of change our history, too. But they talk about it like it didn't create a powerful enough central government and the Constitution created a more powerful central government. Yeah. That's at best a very sloppy way of speaking. Right. And that's because that's largely untrue, right? So, I mean, just looking at the way the legislatures were set up, unicameral legislatures, ones that only have one legislative body, are necessarily going to be more energetic, accomplish more, be less moderated than bicameral ones, right? And that's the famous story with with George Washington and Thomas Jefferson, where Thomas Jefferson comes back from France after the, the new constitution, the one we have now, was 
proposed by the Constitutional Convention. He asks George Washington, why do we have a second House of Congress? George Washington says, why do you pour your coffee into the, the saucer? Jefferson says, to cool it. And Washington replies, just so. Yeah. So, yeah, basically the idea being if something has to pass through two separate groups looking over, reviewing, debating it, there's going to be more time for reflection. If there are obvious flaws, they're more likely to be found. And, you know, just in general, cooler heads are more likely to yeah. prevail in that circumstance. Right. And it's also you know, by having one house that represents the people, that's probably going to be the house that pushes for change. Right. Because the common people tend to, well, they, they tend to favor changes. Whereas when this, the, with the Senate, which represents the interests of the state legislatures, probably going to be a little bit slower, a little bit more resistant to change. Hamilton talks about this in one of the Federalist Papers. Uh, but basically, you want to make sure that both interests are represented. People who are pushing for change where your society needs it, but you want to moderate that change, make sure it doesn't happen too rapidly, uh, as it did in the French Revolution. And bicameralism is great for both of those things. Yeah. And another key difference is that rather than have any kind of proportionality in representation in Congress, under the Articles of Confederation, states voted as a state. So Massachusetts, one vote. New York, one vote, etc. Now, yeah, and, and there's a there's a very clear, I think, theoretical reason for that. Yeah. Uh, which is and I think this is sort of the principal difference between the United States Constitution and the Articles of Confederation is that the Articles of Confederation only represented the states. Right. So the central government was derived from the authority of the states. The states were the ones who had voted to create it, and it only represented them. It did not represent the people of the states. Whereas yeah. the Constitution of the United States, from its very first three words, makes it very clear, we the people of the United States by our authority, this constitution is created, which if you think about it, it's a lot more consistent with the Declaration of Independence. Because the Declaration of Independence says that any just government must derive its powers from the consent of the governed. Yeah. Well, and I think importantly, it, it's sort of a conceptual shift away from what historically were sort of more frequent types of political arrangements than a, a, a federal system like we now have where these sort of alliance networks of, of nearby states or, or, or polities of various kinds, right. just sort of agreeing to, to band together for defense and have sort of a minimal kind of internal policy. You see that with right. the Swiss Confederacy. You see that to a certain extent with the Dutch Republic, which are both, you know, precedents in, in certain ways for the Articles of Confederation. It's, yeah, it's really Dutch more thinking about the states as sort of banding together for mutual benefit rather than thinking of the United States as fundamentally one body, I think. But because of that, the powers of Congress under the Articles of Confederation are actually theoretically unlimited. Right. So long as states can agree to a particular measure, that measure is within Congress's authority. Yeah. Very, and very different from the Constitution of the United States. Constitution of the United States, as we know, is one of enumerated powers. If the Constitution doesn't explicitly say that Congress can do it, Congress can't do it. Here, yeah. because the authority of Congress is directly derived from the authority of the states, not of the people, it's not limited or beholden to the people. 
Therefore, right. it does not place limits upon the federal power. Federal power is whatever the states can agree it is. Yeah. And to give it a little more credit, and as I'm sure you're aware, it was vaguely aware of that problem. And so it, it had a fairly high bar for actually producing any decisions, but that ultimately sure, contributes a sure. bit to the problem. Rather than a majority, you needed nine of the states. And remember at the time there were 13, you needed nine of them to agree. So basically what we would call a super majority probably. Right. Yeah. Because, because they were aware of the problem we just described. Yeah. Be, because it would be so easy for a majority of the states that vote to you know, basically, particularly on trade kind of things, where, where the interests yeah. of the southern states were very, very different from those of the northern states, uh, because right. northern states were largely commercial, southern states were largely agricultural. So they almost always had opposite interests when it came to trade. So yeah. because of that, they figured, you know, we don't want to have a majority of states binding the other half to do something that is totally contrary to their interest. We're going to require a super majority of states in order to ratify something. But again, that's a recognition of the fact that their power is theoretically unlimited. Right. Yeah. You know, th there are a few caveats to what the Congress can do under the Articles of Confederation, but it is, as you mentioned, much different than the very straightforward enumeration of powers that you get under the current Constitution. Right. It's actually, you know, it's not entirely dissimilar from something like the European Union. Yeah. Which was created basically to facilitate trade between different European nations but now if you look at what the EU does, it regulates basically everything under the sun uh, yep. with thousands of regulations for anything you could think of. Well, yeah. that, the, that's because when they created that trade agreement, they did not have explicit limitations on the power of the European Union, or yeah. at least not sufficient limitations on that power. Yeah, somewhat similar to the general problem, I think, that parliamentary systems, as opposed to a more federal system like we have face, you just you invest way too much power in the hands of the lawmakers and you have insufficient sort of balances to that that power. At any rate. So, I mean, just just to your point, David, to read a couple articles from the Articles of Confederation here from Article three, it says the states hereby severally enter into a firm league of friendship with each other for their common defense, the security of their liberties and their mutual and general welfare. Next article says, to better secure and perpetuate mutual friendship and intercourse among the people of the different states of this union. So you're right. It's basically an alliance. Yeah. You know, a, a fairly closely drawn one where they, you know, they'll share to some extent, at least kind of common foreign policy and, and certain, you know, sort of trade benefits, but basically uh, an alliance network. Yeah. The, the point I want to make, though, that I want to stress very, very clearly in this podcast, because it's been so misconstrued, is the one that I said a moment ago, yeah. that the Articles of Confederation was a more powerful central government than the Constitution of the United States. Yeah. In, it was just also less capable of accomplishing any of its aims. Exactly. Its scope was far broader. Yeah. Pe people mistook. I mean, you know, I think it's... That's why I say I think it's just sloppiness. And now people are talking yeah. about this. But people mistook the inability to accomplish goals under the Articles of Confederation for a government that lacked power. Right. Yeah. Really, you know, that's just some, a lack of a capable executive. Yeah. If someone had found a way of actually, you know, sort of building consensus and, and compliance among the states under the provisions of the Articles of Confederation, it could have done much more than the federal government is authorized to do. Uh, right. We system. would never have been having the argument from Wickard. Yeah. <laughs> if, if all True. of the states agreed to regulate commerce, it didn't matter if it was interstate. 
Heck, it didn't matter if it was commerce. If all the states yeah. agreed to do it, they could regulate it. This is, again, one of those things where... Or rather, if 9 out of 13 agreed to do it. Yeah. <laughs> rather, yeah. <laughs> which, is, which, by the way, is, is a lack of protection for minority interests, which yeah. is central to our Constitution. You know, under our Constitution, even if 49 out of 50 states agree to something, if that thing is a fundamental deprivation of the rights of that state or the people of that state, that thing is illegal. Which, right. that's, that's something that's worth mentioning, too, is that we said that the federal constitution, the one that we have now, is derived from the people directly. That's also true of the state governments. The authority of the states under the federal constitution is not derived from the federal government. That's also derived directly from the people. So we've got yeah. federal government derived from the people directly, as well as from the states, which means from the people indirectly. So it's derived yeah. from both of those things. Really a very elegant system balances many different kinds of interests. Yeah. And, you know, as we've mentioned before on the podcast and elsewhere, it's really a remarkable achievement that we've had a Republican constitution, lowercase r, Republican, you know, as a republic, not nothing to do with the party. But for as long as we've had it, you know, it's been so Almost much... Almost years. So much longer lived than virtually any other precedent you can compare it to. It's, it's really astonishing. And, you know, the, the only other longer one is ancient Rome prior to its collapse into empire. And they were culturally homogenous. They had the same language. And you know, also, you know, at, at various times, didn't really behave terribly constitutionally. <laughs> so, yeah. You know, yeah. But, even prior to collapse into empire, they. Uh, yeah, well, you could get away with. I'll let you with, guys with read Cato stuff. the Elder yeah. and the rest of them. But. <laughs> One thing I, I we didn't get a chance to bring this up specifically. It was last episode that we were talking about the French Revolution, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. One of the things that we didn't bring up then, but that I think illustrates a similar sort of problem that you see under the Articles of Confederation and that you see throughout history, really, is a government with theoretical powers that are absolutely massive in scale, and practical sort of, you know, ability to implement them that are minuscule. And one of the things that was true in France was that they had these sort of regional high courts that they called Parlement, you know, like Parliament, mm -hmm. that could, you know, they were supposed to receive word from the king that a new law was to be enacted and quote unquote register it. That was the term for it. And they could refuse to do that and sort of send it back for reconsideration. But if the king actually showed up, it didn't matter. The king was there. The law got registered regardless because, you know, he's the, right. the ultimate source of law. But it's this thing where, you know, if the king ever cares to actually do this, his, his powers are fundamentally limitless. The problem right. is just he's not going to bother to, you know, drag himself all over the countryside to do this. So, you know, you can kind of stall the gears if right. you choose to. No, we were actually very blessed early on in our history that the states did have such diverse interests. Yeah, because the result was just that we never got nine states agreeing to anything. <laughs> yeah, you, we could have had much worse results than that. Yes. You know, if the True. if the states had happened to agree to things, we'd be living in a very different country today. Yeah. Anyway, so I, I want to read th this is you know, this shows some of the problems and, and we'll get into where people realized there were problems with the Articles of Confederation and finally decided to throw that out a bit later. But. I just want to show some of the abstract, more theoretical problems with it. If you look at Article 6 of the Articles of Confederation, look at all, all these provisions are phrased the same way. What they say is, no state without the consent of the United States in Congress assembled shall send any embassy to 
or receive any embassy from, or enter into any conference, agreement, alliance, or treaty with any king, prince, or state, nor shall any person holding any office of profit or trust in the United States, or any of them, accept any present emolument, office, or title of any kind, whatever from any king, prince, or foreign state, nor shall any of the United States in Congress assembled, or any of them, grant any title of nobility. So in other words, who's responsible for conducting a diplomacy under the Articles of Confederation? It Who actually be. sends out ambassadors and receives ambassadors? The states, just as long as the they're states, authorized. But they can't yeah. do it unless nine out of 13 states agree that they can do it. Right. That is just nuts. I mean, I, I think the problem with that's going to be pretty obvious because say that we want to receive the ambassador from France and yeah. Massachusetts is already in prepared to do that. They're going to send out an ambassador. Well, for one thing, we got a delay receiving that ambassador until after Congress has been able to vote on it. But at that point, the issue is still further complicated by the fact that the issue is not just whether or not we receive the ambassador, but which state's going to do it. Yep. You know, if, if the ambassador from South Carolina ends up seeing the, amb the ambassador from France, we may end up getting a very different treaty than if the yep. one from Massachusetts is seeing the ambassador from France. That's, that's an obvious problem. You know, that's, that's not going to work. We're, not, we're basically not going to be able to conduct foreign diplomacy under this. We will not be able to form treaties. And that's what happens. Yeah. And, you know, the, while that may seem kind of unusual to us because we're so used to having a single foreign policy, it's worth noting that even, you know, in the Civil War, foreign opinion, you know, tended to attach to either the North or the South in that context because they had various kinds of economic relations. The South right. sold cotton to Britain, so Britain was sympathetic toward the Confederacy. And, you know, under this system, the South might be very interested in a commercial treaty with Great Britain, the North might not be, and the North could fundamentally block that, you know, the ability to form a treaty by just yeah. not voting to allow a Southern state to receive an ambassador. Or vice versa. Yep, exactly. Yeah. And it's, so again, this is from the same article. This one's even more ridiculous. <laughs> no state shall engage in any war without the consent of the United States in Congress assembled, unless yeah. such states shall be actually <laughs> invaded by enemies or shall have received certain advice of a resolution being formed by some nation of Indians to invade such state. And, the, and it goes on, you know, basically specifying the kind of danger that needs to exist. Yeah. So <laughs> states are engaging in wars and they can only do it if they have the consent of Congress. Yep. <laughs> Same exact problem here, only I would say turned up to 11, because very unlikely that any particular state's going to have the, the ability, e even if they end up I mean, conscripting people into the army, very unlikely they're going to have the power to do that. Yeah, there's also financial problems with the Articles of Confederation. You want to get into those a bit, yeah. David? Yeah, well, so, you know, as we've been discussing, the theoretical powers of the Congress under this system are vast. And so, you know, they could decide that they're going to raise any kind of tax that they that they, you know, so please, really, unlike under the current system, at least in theory, accepting things like Sibelius. But there's basically no provision for how any such tax could be collected. You know, you basically need the completely voluntary cooperation of the people being taxed in order to actually. Well, could they happen. tax the people at all? No, that, that's a fair point. No, you can tax the states. Basically, you can. Yeah. 
ask for and what it really comes down and, to and who's because of the whether or not the states get taxed the states <laughs> the states yeah and yeah you know <laughs> even if you manage to pass it say nine out of the 13 agree that they like this tax there's no mechanism for that to actually come into be so what it comes down to basically is congress saying we would like to ask the states to pay us and then they vote on that yes or no but then after that point the states can still decide whether or not they want to do it. And did that. And right. so, you know, you've got a bunch of I, I don't want to. It's hard because you want to talk about every single one of the articles here. But yeah. <laughs> you, you've got a lot of articles here about how the federal treasury is going to work or rather how the, the treasury of Congress is going to work. Yeah. Did, did there ever end up there was never much money that ended up being. No. In that and- treasury. In fact, one of the main causes, I think Governor Morris wrote to. I want to say John Jay about this. John Jay, John Jay was either the recipient or the sender of like virtually every letter that had to do with complaining about the Articles of Confederation. I'm not sure why that is, uh, but John Jay was very, very involved in that. And John Jay was a great founding father, great hero of our nation. Uh, but Governor Morris sends him a letter basically talking about the fact that, hey, the Continental Army still hasn't been paid. Right. They've got a bunch of guns. They've been nice so far. If we look yeah. at the history of the world, that's probably not going to last very long. Yeah. Speaking of Rome, <laughs> disbanding an army is historically one of the most dangerous moments for any government, and especially one that lacks a strong executive. Yeah. So, yeah, all kinds of problems. Here's a good one. All bills of credit. This is Article 13. All bills of credit emitted, monies borrowed, and debts contracted by or under the authority of Congress before the assembly of the United States in pursuance of the present confederation shall be deemed and considered as a charge against the United States for payment and satisfaction whereof the United States and their public faith are hereby solemnly pledged. In other words, they take on all credits that have been assumed by the Continental Congress during our War of Independence. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of money. Yes, it is. <laughs> nations without credit from other nations tend not to do terribly well. Yeah. And new regimes tend not to get the benefit of the doubt from foreign countries, which we were at the time. So, so if you a, don't a pay problem. back any of these war debts, how long are you going to be respected as a nation by the rest of the world? Not, not very, very long. Not yeah. very long. And all of those problems start coming to a head punctuated by a very significant historical event, you may have heard of it, called Shays' Rebellion. Mm-hmm. So what's Shays' Rebellion? Shays' Rebellion, basically a, an uprising in Massachusetts stemming from you know dissatisfaction with measures that were taken after the war, among other things, trying to pay down the debt via high taxation. Yeah. The way, yes, because Massachusetts still has its own war debt. Right, exactly. And I believe it was Daniel Shea was his name. Yeah, Shays, um, I think. Right? I thought, I thought it was just Shea, but I could be wrong. I could be wrong about that. Oh, you're right, it is Daniel Shays. Shays. It is Shays. I thought it was Shea. I, this whole time, I thought it was Shea and he had a rebellion. Mm, anyway. You were putting the apostrophe <laughs> in the wrong place, David. I was. Okay, so Daniel Shays... <laughs> who I believe had been a regimental officer during the war. I, I could be making right. that up. But right. At any rate. But he, they, they don't like the taxes. They don't like yeah. the, the way that debts are handled. And there's an uprising in Massachusetts. And Massachusetts can't really do anything about it. Yeah. They ask Congress to help them out. What happens? Well, very little, as it turns out. Yeah. <laughs> it's a huge problem. 
Everyone yeah. knows that it's a problem. It's not the first problem with the Articles of Confederation. It's just probably the, you know, it's the one that makes the news. Mm-hmm. It's the, the rest of them are not as flashy and glamorous. This one, you can bet this would have been probably center of the headlines for weeks, months afterwards. Yeah, you know, understandably so. <laughs> Lacking a real apparatus for either funding or commanding military forces, there's, you know, very little in, what, in the way of a decisive response to Shay's Rebellion. Right. So this sort of creates the impetus to have a constitutional convention. James Madison writes to George Washington. He has a list of issues with the Articles of Confederation. We're not going to list all of them at length here, but we will put that in the description of this podcast because that's really worth reading. He writes pretty succinctly. Madison's a very good summarizer. It's why he took most of the notes on the debates in the convention or the debates of Congress. He was really good at that. So, yeah, ends up writing George Washington. Here are the issues. George Washington's already aware of them. He's actually been corresponding about that with John Jay previously to that. George Washington, obviously sort of a heroic figure in the American mindset, won our independence from Great Britain, sort of uses his gravitas to organize a constitutional convention of which he's going to serve as president. And he's actually, you know, far, far more responsible than any committee or board president than I have ever seen in any of the boards that I've been on. Because, you know, Robert's Rules of Order says that a board president is not supposed to give input on resolutions because that sort of unduly influences the rest of the people on the board. I think Washington says two words throughout the entire convention, at least ones that are noted by Madison. Very responsible. Must have required a great deal of self-restraint from him. Really a remarkable man. I mean, we could do a whole episode whole series just on George Washington and his character. David's laughing at me because he's heard he's heard me wax yeah. poetic about Washington before. But yeah, I, I really do a think few that, times. <laughs> that the strength of our Constitution really is owed in large part to Washington's self-restraint. Anyway, the art that we end up do we do end up having that constitutional convention. Constitutional convention is called by the states pursuant to which article of the Articles of Confederation is it, David? It is also Article 13, which just says, says the Articles of Confederation shall be observed, blah, 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 several more things, nor shall any alteration at any time hereafter be made in any of them unless such alteration be agreed to in a Congress of the United States and be afterwards confirmed by the legislatures of every state. Right. And, and it's earlier it's defined a Congress of the United States as comprised of delegates appointed by those states by whatever method those states determine appropriate to appoint those yeah. delegates, right? So mm -hmm. they appoint delegates, the states appoint delegates to a constitutional convention. I believe all states are represented at that convention except for Rhode Island, for whatever reason, which is funny because they actually end up adopting sort of Rhode Island's model when it comes to the free exercise <laughs> clause, but yeah, and, and the religious test clause. But for whatever reason, Rhode Island doesn't send a representative. You know, I don't, at this point, I don't even know if anybody has any issue with this, right? Because there are people out there who claim that our constitution was un, was not validly ratified, right? I, I don't, yeah. we talked about that a little bit a couple of weeks ago. It might've been last week, actually, with I think our, it, our episode Yeah, because I think we were comparing it to the National Assembly in France, um, which yeah. did unilaterally sort of rewrite its own mandate. And yeah, you know, for whatever reason, some people, it's sort of a, a weird little kind of earworm type thing that I don't really even know how people get this idea, but some people seem to have gotten this idea that 
basically revising the Articles of Confederation into our current constitution wasn't permitted under the Articles of Confederation. I don't think that's true at all. You know, I think it, it's no. pretty plain that they followed the procedure that was laid out and they just happened to conclude that the alterations needed were pretty near total. <laughs> yeah, and, and even then, you know, they, they were appointed purely as sort of a committee or really a convention, that's why it's called that, to explore what changes were needed to the Articles of Confederation and then make proposals to the Congress and to the states, right? Yeah. So constitutional convention does not decide anything on its own. Right. They come yeah. back with a constitution. They say, you know, our suggestion is you can't fix these Articles of Confederation. They're kind of unfixable. They're not very well organized. Here's a system that based on James Madison's sketch of three branches of government and you know, with the input of all the different states to, to balance all the interests, here's our proposal. And that proposal is the Constitution of the United States. They propose that. What's the next step after that? Well, then it has to go to each of those states who hold a ratifying convention pursuant to the authority of that state, which, as we mentioned, is derived from the people of, that, of those states. So yep. pursuant to the authority of both the states and the people of those states, they hold ratifying conventions where the convention debates and then eventually votes on whether or not this constitution is one that that state wants to adopt. And how many of the 13 states do end up ratifying the constitution? Oh, is that not a rhetorical question? <laughs> I guess it was, but I think we all know the answer. Yeah. It's 13 of them. Yeah. All everybody. of them end up ratifying the constitution. It's unanimous. Yeah. As yeah, we mentioned... Articles of Confederation derives its power directly from the states. Each of those states voted they weren't going to keep that. Yep. They were going to have the Constitution instead. I don't know how there's any debate about whether or not the Constitution was validly ratified. You yep. know, it's rare, very, very rare in human history that transition from one constitutional order to the next is actually conducted according to means that were legally valid under the prior system. Usually right. people just get together and decide to replace it. That's what happened in France. You yep. know, they voted them. Their first vote was to vote themselves authority that they did not have when they were yeah. called as a convention. <laughs> yes, that's you know that's an extreme example, but that's much more typical of the way these things tend to go. That's not at all how it went in the United States. It was a very orderly, and and really you know the Constitution was passed even without much pushback until it got to the Virginia ratifying convention, and there Patrick Henry and George Mason and a group of others yeah. decide they're going to throw a fuss over it. So that's you know, if you have a spare afternoon and you want to read something that is a lot less boring than you'd expect, read the Virginia Ratifying Convention <laughs> because th there's days where, you know, this poor guy that had to write down the, the minutes of, of that convention, you know, he writes, he has nothing but Patrick Henry talking all day on some of these days because you know, Patrick Henry just hated it so much. He's like, you know, this president's going to utterly oppress the people of all the different states. Uh, and it's, you know, the guy's pretty good. The stenographer's pretty good about keeping notes of everything Patrick Henry said, but occasionally he just can't keep up and he'll say things like, you know, at this point, Mr. Henry goes on a 15-minute diatribe about how the president will oppress all of the people. And it's, yeah. you know, it's kind made, of amusing Made various other anyway, remarks. It gets, <laughs> yeah, it gets, gets controversial at that point after Virginia. I, I think it's how many states have ratified it before that? I want to say six of them. I think Virginia is the seventh. So it you, needs, You'd know better than I would about that. 
I'm bad with numbers, really bad with numbers, but <laughs> so it's, it's got almost the number that it needs to be ratified prior to Virginia. So after that, next ratifying convention is going to be New York. That's where Alexander Hamilton famously enlists John Jay and James Madison to write a series of papers defending the Constitution and sort of explaining why it's a good idea to adopt yeah. it. You may have heard of them. They're called the Federalist Papers. And those end up convincing the rest of the states to ratify. I'm obviously summarizing a great deal here. Yeah. Uh, there was more back and forth than that. But they do all eventually end up ratifying. And Federalist Papers have become you know, really important historical documents showing sort of the thinking of our founding fathers when they wrote the Constitution. So, yeah, that's, that's the history of ratification. I don't know how there's any doubt in the world that it was properly ratified. It makes no sense to me at all. Yeah, you know, it, it strikes me almost as one of those things that get circulated and people want to believe it because it seems sort of cool and interesting and like gives you sort of, you know, some kind of insider knowledge, but it's, you know, basically an urban myth. Uh. Well, I, I think it's based in, you know, people don't like, or certainly people of a political persuasion don't like how big our government's grown, how much power it has, how much That's power the presidency yeah. has. They tend to, to place the blame for these flaws on our Constitution because they say, gee, you four sheets of paper, you didn't protect against all this. That's what you were supposed to do. Yeah. Obviously, anybody that follows our content knows the error in that. Four pieces of paper can't defend themselves. They need to yeah. be followed. Right. And we, the people, are responsible for making sure they are followed. And I, I would say to the extent the president has become tyrannical or the federal government's become way too powerful, it's because we haven't been doing that. Yep. You know, in, but anyway, I think that's why they want to say it's invalid. They want to say that we used to have this this central government that was far less powerful. In fact, it didn't even have a president, so it wouldn't have any of these problems <laughs> that we do today. And I think that's just very ignorant and short-sighted because, as we've shown you, it, it was actually more powerful previously. And the fact that we have an executive is a good thing. That creates divided government. You split the interests of one branch from another instead of just joining them together in a Congress that can do whatever the heck it wants. Exactly. You know, we, we didn't really get deep into that issue. But yeah, you know, fundamentally, the Congress under the Articles of Confederation was both legislative and executive. And then as far as there you know, was scope for a federal judiciary under the Articles of Confederation, basically, Congress picked a tribunal right. of, of people who would judge. So, yeah, and and that they could they could decide what issues were subject to review by the court. Yeah, they could set whatever they wanted outside the court's jurisdiction. So really, if they did establish a court, that would be totally subject to Congress as well. Yeah. You know, it, it'd I mean, be... It's, it's, they replaced the tyranny of King George and the British Parliament with, you know, to quote that Mel Gibson movie that we've quoted before, The Patriot, you know, <laughs> with a few hundred tyrants over here. Yeah. And fortunately, we were very, very lucky that the states didn't agree on a whole lot. Because if yeah. they had, we'd live in a very different country today. Yeah, if we were a more sort of geographically and culturally homogenous place, we'd end up with something very much like modern Britain's parliamentary system. And if you want to know more about the problems with that, you can listen to our July 4th episodes. But Yeah, or just look at the news, you know, go on the Daily Mail <laughs> or, or the Guardian, any British website. And just the issues they're having to deal with yeah. in terms of their law are, are things that are unheard of here. It's we Anyway. <laughs> yeah. If you like freedom, so, stay here. If you like freedom, <laughs> pick, pick the U.S. Constitution. Don't pick the Articles of Confederation. It's not a great system. So why'd they put it in place? 
Well, why they, that was one of your topics you have written here to discuss is why they chose to do that instead of just going immediately something like our Constitution. Well, you know, I think part of it is, as we, you know, as we alluded to, this kind of model is a much more common historical one for basically non-monarchies to follow. Loose associations of different political bodies yeah, sort of in this network of mutual support. It's what the Swiss looked like. It's what the Dutch looked like, basically, you know, with, with some wrinkles in, in the case of the Netherlands. But Except that know, those I, places were culturally homogenous. And yep. those places generally had a unity of interest between their members. Yeah, and, you know... But, but I would say even also, more so than any of those things, really, really all the Articles of Confederation is, is an attempt to formalize what the states were already doing. Yeah, no, that's a good In point. meeting in a general Congress. It was yeah, not I mean, creating a government system. I don't think that it was really thought out as, you know, here's a comprehensive approach at a government. Right. It was just, we're already agreeing to stuff together. Let's formalize that. Yeah, and, you know, it, it follows the same basic pattern that the Continental Congress did previously, voting by states. States just sort of send delegations of various sizes. I thought that was one of the interesting features of the Articles of Confederation is that it devotes a decent amount of space to talking about how you pick your delegates, even though the delegates don't actually have independent authority at all. Yeah. Um, you know, they're just there to discuss, basically, and then you vote as a state. You don't vote by your your delegates. Yeah. But... Which is, that, that's how the Declaration of Independence was adopted. You know, that, that's... Right, right. Yeah, it makes sense. If you're, if you're going to a conference, and each state's represented there, it's going to make sense represented. You know, they have the same representation for each one. If you're yep. a government, not so much. So I, I think right. that's why they did it the way they did. And it became very clear very quickly that wasn't going to work. No, for for the kind of you know things they wanted to have in common, common foreign policy, common laws of trade, you know, mutual armed forces. You know, th that was something we didn't delve into, but it was sort of a weird system where the sort of upper echelon of military officers would be appointed by Congress, but then below a certain yeah. rank, the states supply their own, except in the Navy where it's all federal. And that, you know, that does make sense because no one state can own the ocean. But yeah, you know, it, it's a sort of odd elements of, of sort of mixed input into the military. Yeah. But, yeah. you know, those who, things... Who's responsible for paying the military, though? Congress, but they right. can only get Which funding if they with the cooperation paid them, of the states. Yeah, you know, that, that's so you, you look at our Second Amendment, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the protection of a free state. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. What's going on there? Well, obviously, state militias to protect against encroachments of the federal government. There was zero protection for that under the yeah. Articles of Confederation. If the Congress had voted to fund the military, by all means, it could absolutely be used to oppress the interests of the states, because yeah. generally militaries act at the behest of whoever is paying them. Yep, that tends to be the case. Yeah, they want to keep getting paid. But fortunately, they were not able to pay them. <laughs> that created a whole host of other problems. But, you know, yeah. the fact that it was so dysfunctional, and I keep saying this, but the fact it was so dysfunctional and the states disagreed on so much ended up really being a, a huge saving force for our republic. Yeah. Well, I don't know that we would have gotten the Constitution we did otherwise. Yeah, and I think it speaks to the fact, you know, they, they had certain objectives that they wanted. They wanted to present a united front to the outside world, but they didn't have any of the sort of the tools and, and mechanisms to do that. 
And I think, you know, in, in large part, they were concerned that using sort of the, the common examples of that, you know, the, the way things were generally done would result in far too much power being concentrated into the hands of this federal government. And so the moment where it becomes clear, we need to make some kind of change to get those things, to get common foreign policy, to get right. common defense, makes you think, okay, since we need those things, how do we ensure that things stay within acceptable limits? And I think that's, right. you yeah. know. And, and that's, you see that concern voiced in a lot of the letters that are passed back and forth prior to the Constitutional Convention, particularly George Washington, very prescient about the risks that nations face. Uh, John Jay as well you know, articulates this. I mentioned he's on a lot of that correspondence. But what they, what they basically had to say is if we don't act quickly and have some kind of constitutional convention, we are absolutely going to get an extremely powerful central government that will oppress the people. Yep. We have to find something that works and is able to do the things that we want it to do, but is restricted from doing the things we don't want it to do. Because if we don't do it, it's still, it's still going to happen organically, right. the way that so many governments have been overthrown throughout history. Yep. Anyway, I should probably mark the end of this section before we go too far over time. But yeah. I guess just, you know, we, we still, we're still struggling to get these under an hour. But. Yeah. <laughs> except no imitators of the U.S. Constitution, and that includes the Articles of Confederation. Yes. And with that, let's get into hot takes. What did that have to do with France? What did what have to do with France? Hey, we're doing Summer of the Revolutions, right? What does that have to do with... Oh, well, you know, it's to tie it back in. We want to pay attention to the way the U.S. developed a new system versus the way the French developed a new system. And one of oh, the clear distinctions is the U.S. did Orderly it. transition between the two. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Sticking to bounds of law, even when those bounds of law weren't particularly well formed and everyone recognized that, we still stayed within them rather than just saying, you know what? No, we're going to upset the whole apple cart. Yeah, it really is remarkable throughout human history. Yeah. Anyway, hot takes. Okay, so this is, uh, this is from Twitter again, David. Yeah, but this is the only one from Twitter for this week, so settle. Well, it's from Weed and Snacks. He <laughs> says, stoner tip, if you ever get pulled over with weed, put it in a stamped envelope. It's illegal for them to search your mail. Uh, that's funny. That's actually really <laughs> funny. Um, so what, what do we think about this, though? Is this is this going to hold up? No, because it's it's I mean, he is right about mail, but that's mail after it's placed into the mailbox. You know, that's mm -hmm. once it's being delivered by the U.S. Postal Service, there actually is a higher threshold for searching people's mail than there would be for doing a traffic stop and searching a vehicle. But that would not be considered someone's mail. And realistically, frankly, they're probably going to do it anyway. Uh, also, you know, just the court, they're going to find out this wasn't valid. You know, this was not a valid postmark. <laughs> and yeah. when that happens, it's none of this is going to get suppressed. So because yeah. Yeah, that's generally how it works, right? The, the police will perform all the time searches and seizures that are not legal. And what yeah. happens is the evidence gets suppressed. So I don't think this is going to protect you. It's actually kind of clever. That's better than most of the tricks that I've seen, honestly. <laughs> uh, but I, I, it's, I, no, it's still not going to work. I found it intriguing on the theoretical level. I, you know, as you mentioned, you know, just having a stamp on something doesn't necessarily make it male as far as, you know, that, that sort of thing is concerned. But I pragmatically, I have to wonder though, how you're going to pull this off because probably, you know, the police officer is, you know, in view of you 
if you've been pulled over already and you're going to frantically start stuffing some drugs into an envelope. Um, I'm not sure how that's going to play. Oh, it's <laughs> in the mail now. I can't search it. It's not going to happen. Yeah, um, I don't I don't think this I is like I actually level. I like the thought here. That's that's a clever idea, but yeah, I don't think it's going to work. Yeah. Bearing in mind, nothing we say here is legal advice, but um, yeah, but don't I, don't, do I think I think this one is unlikely. Better, to better work. yet, don't smoke weed in the car. Yeah, that's 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 a fair point too. Yeah, it, I think in virtually every jurisdiction, if not literally all of them, it's still illegal to to drive while under the influence of marijuana, regardless of you know the the state legislation on possession in general. So probably just a bad idea to have it in the car. Anyway, all right, we have any more? Yes, we have one more. All right, so this next one is going to be a bit wordy because this is you know just pieces from an actual like opinion piece that someone wrote, but I found it quite interesting and I think you may as well. So this is going to be, you know, this is the first part. Well, at least it's not Twitter. It's not Twitter. That's true. Okay. So this is from MSNBC. Uh, the headline just is NBC, the amendment actually. ending slavery could be the key to securing abortion rights. And then it has a subline, sub headline. What do you call that? Sub subhead. Sub Subhead, yeah, that says, denying the rights of reproductive health and choice, bodily integrity, and personal autonomy was essential to U.S. slavery. What? Mm-hmm. So that's, yeah, so that's that's the headline and the uh, sort of the okay. editorial description. We're going to get into parts of, you know, and this is not the first paragraph. I'm jumping around a bit. Here's some of the actual text of the piece. I'm skeptical. I've not heard the argument, so I'll, I yeah. won't judge it yet, but I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm skeptical. <laughs> that's about how I felt as well. Okay, and this says, introducing the Health Protection Act without taking seriously how the current court's majority is likely to respond is a path that is ultimately more performative than substantive. Rather than comb the Constitution for an express textual basis for the rights Roe protected, members of Congress have chosen to resurrect an analysis that more than 20 years ago proved unable to protect women. What are they talking about? So I I think, uh, you know, uh, if I recall correctly, they're basically talking about how Lots of, of public figures made statements about, oh, you know, the, the right to privacy is being infringed, the right to the constitutional right to be an abortion or to have an abortion rather is being infringed, you know, all this stuff. And so what but the, the upshot here is that they're saying we need a textual basis for protecting abortion rights from the Constitution. Uh-huh. So that's what we're looking for. And this right, last because part that's the only is going to be justices will uphold. Right. We need to make yeah. sure that it'll meet. Yeah. All and right. So this last um, part is it's what they, honestly if I were to draw a parallel to slavery, it's. You know, not to signal my views on abortion here, but it seems it's much more natural to go the other way around, doesn't it? Well, we'll see, though. Um, okay. We need a new plan, and the 13th Amendment might be the answer. To satisfy the most ardent originalists who demand some text... The, some the most ardent basis. originalists <laughs> demand some textual basis for both individual rights and congressional authority to legislate. Gee, what an ardent textualist would require yes. some basis for those things. Some basis, text. yes. Yeah, anyway... This plan would have to put black people at the center of their legislative efforts in ways that Roe's original privacy-based right did not. That's right, because that's what the 13th Amendment prohibits. <laughs> so, all right. Since the court decided slaughterhouse cases in 1873, it has been accepted that the original intent of the framers in the 13th Amendment was to benefit those who were formerly enslaved. The 13th Amendment not only establishes declaratory freedom, but also grants Congress all the power it needs to enact legislation that undoes slavery, as well as its badges and incidents, as the court has put it. 
Although neither the court nor Congress has set forth an exhaustive list of those badges and incidents, in 1968, the court found that Congress has the authority to enact legislation aimed at alleviating the institution's burdens and disabilities. Where are they going? The, the inability to abort your child is going to be presented as a burden and disability of slavery? Is that where this is going? All right, so it goes on. Denying the rights of reproductive health and choice, bodily integrity, and personal autonomy was essential to U.S. slavery. Yeah, that's true. Which recognized enslavers complete dominion over the people they enslaved. One of the thing, you know, one of the things that enslavers is the word they used, I think. Yeah, that enslavers controlled related to, in some ways, reproduction. Therefore, yeah. other regulations on reproduction are also. Is that it? With the power of the 13th Amendment, Congress can enact reasonable laws that protect these rights today. Just as slavery branded all blacks with slavery's badges and incidents. That's not true. Not all blacks were slaves. Anyway, regardless of status, blackness, rather than any other aspect of identity, would trigger rights protected by any law enacted by Congress using its enforcement power under the amendment today. That's not true. Anyway, the 14th <laughs> Amendment's Equal Protection Guarantee, meanwhile, would allow non-black people to assert their right to enjoy... Th what the heck? So, yeah, enjoy the same rights the 13th Amendment grants to black people as a matter of racial equality. So it's, it's a very interesting sort of zigzag that's gone on here. Because, you know, on the one hand, you, they're saying that the key uh -huh. to abortion rates lies specifically in a racial question. Namely that because, you know, many black people were enslaved, therefore racial equality and and because slaves didn't control their own reproduction right they're, they're calling lack of ability to control your own reproduction a badge and incident of slavery which fair enough i can go with you that far yeah but it's you know it's worth noting people who weren't slaves at the time did you know also did not have the kinds of abortion rights that were recognized under the roe regime so i'm not sure how also adding like, those this this is way too charitable, so please please forgive me for being this charitable to this argument, but <laughs> if you were looking at a law, say that Kentucky passed a law that all women between the ages of 18 and 27 are required to be pregnant by the end of the year, are required to get pregnant and then you know bring the baby to term by the end of the year. This argument might work because that's somebody controlling their reproductive rights. Yeah. What the court said in Dobbs was that there was no constitutionally guaranteed right to an abortion. Yeah. Prohibiting somebody the right to an abortion has nothing whatsoever to do with controlling their reproductive rights. They still have complete control over whether or not they get pregnant, over, whether, over what they do with the kid when it's born. They have complete autonomy over those things. The only yeah. thing that, ha I mean, they're, they're, what they're doing here is they're eliding between prohibition on abortion and control of reproduction as such. Right. Even though nobody, whether slave or free, had the same rights that Roe guaranteed prior to the abolition of slavery. It's exactly. just absurd. And then I, I find that that zigzag between, you know, the racial component has to be core to it. But then, oh, and then we can just use the 14th Amendment to say everyone once we've shown the yeah, same. Rights. Once we've shown that black people have these rights. Well, equal protection says that one group can't have rights that other people don't. 
So yeah. equal protection, I mean, it has to apply to everybody. You know, that second step, that step about equal protection, making it apply to everybody, that should be what shows you that you were wrong about the application of the 13th Amendment. Right. Because if you're creating rights that other people don't have and never had, that can't possibly be the practical effect of the 13th Amendment. No. The 13th Amendment ends a specific particular institution of slavery, such that you know, people who were previously slaves have the same rights as people who were not. If you acknowledge that the rights that you believe the abolition of slavery creates are in excess of those protected for people who are not the descendants of former slaves, then it can't possibly be a 13th Amendment right. Yeah. Anyway, I thought this one was truly, you know, circuitous and Byzantine in its, in its sort you know, of argument. The pothead so, one was better. I, I don't even want to yeah. give this the, I don't want to give this the compliment of saying that it's clever because it isn't. No, it's just... It doesn't uh, even it, work on a specious level. No, it's just Who published complicated. NBC. Wow. You know, as, as an opinion piece, I believe, rather than, you know... Who wrote the, this? Is anybody whose name you'd recognize that wrote this? I don't think so, but let me, let me double check. I don't, I don't remember the name meaning anything to me, but... Uh, That's a really bad. Lisa A. Crooms Robinson, who it says is a professor at Howard University School of Law. Wow. Mm -hmm. Huh. All right, folks, yep. don't go to Howard. <laughs> anyway. They don't, you know, they apparently don't screen their professors. Or actually, you know, worse yet, maybe they do screen their professors and they wanted people like that. But well, we're not even going to go there. Say, we're going to assume they don't screen their professors. I have to say, you know, that's one way of looking at it. Another way, and I won't weigh in too heavily on this one, is that it seems about on par with some of the stuff I've read from Harvard. So, uh, <laughs> I, I don't know that the stuff from Harvard was as Byzantine as that. No, but it, it, in some actually, you know, to be fair, at least this one tried to connect something to the text of the law. Yeah, see, that, than, that's what I find so uh, egregious about it, though, is the person that wrote this clearly knows a little bit about constitutional law, but yeah. didn't know better than to write this. Yeah. As opposed to like, the... It's uh, not just total... Some of the stuff out of Harvard is like, you know, totally ignorant. Like, I'm surprised it's not written in crayon. But, well, yeah. I, I'm thinking specifically of an article I read from a Harvard uh, law review where the guy basically said, it doesn't matter if what I'm proposing is illegal because it, it, it's better than what's legal. So, yeah, so that has no business being in any law review. That's not somebody <laughs> yeah. who's even speaking legally. That's not a yeah. legal way to express an opinion. But yeah. now here... It's, this person clearly knows 13th Amendment jurisprudence. This person clearly understands how the 14th Amendment applies. This is just silly. Yeah. No, it's, um, it's rather, rather interesting, I thought. And, you know, the, the language used to say, you know, oh, it needs some textual basis to satisfy them, I think, betrays the... the sorry, uh, sorry, the most ardent constitutionalist. Yeah. Right? <laughs> but... <laughs> And it's got to yeah. have some basis in text. And even then, oh, that's, I actually totally missed that point. She doesn't even mm -hmm. base it in the text of the 13th Amendment. No, she bases she, it on subsequent jurisprudence about the 13th Amendment. Yeah. I think probably exactly. most of the originalists on the court, certainly the more, you know, the, the harder originalists like Clarence Thomas, maybe Gorsuch Alito, probably would reject precedent saying that uh, the, saying the badges and incidents of slavery are legally equivalent with slavery itself. Yeah. I mean, that, that's a judicial gloss on the 13th Amendment. I think an ardent textualist would not agree with that. Yeah. So anyway, I, I think all of, all of which betrays an attitude 
that we've sort of alluded to many times in our material that far too many people in the U.S. seem to be taking it for granted that judicial opinion is just a fig leaf for political opinion. And even if that's true, we need to fight to make it not true. Yeah. And, and this is, a, you know, this is an exaggerated example for sure. Yeah. But this is very much what people on the living constitution side of things try to do yeah. to sort of massage the constitution into favoring their political goals. It's very obvious when they do it. This is a particularly exaggerated example. Obviously, you don't usually see it this nakedly, but that, that's, that is what goes on. Yeah. Anyway, I think that will do it, uh, do it for this episode. We've gone on too long again. Uh, you know, we appreciate your patience with us. We're trying to get closer to an hour. We're failing spectacularly. We, we got to get, David, we got to get on our outline. We have to have our, our times that we're supposed to be hitting. Fair enough. Fair enough. Anyway, thank you for listening. We hope that you'll listen again.